All right, so we're in chapter uh, 20 of Judges. Uh, I would love to get all the way through this today, uh, through 20, and then, uh, and then we'll deal in, in 21 next week. But if not, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> to really get started in it, we need to back up just a couple of verses. And again, this is one of those times when probably the best place to put the, the, the break might have been a couple of verses in front of where it was for the chapter. Because if you look at verse 29, he says, when he, this is referring to the Levite. Remember the Levite and his concubine, his concubine dies. We don't know under exactly what circumstances uh, if she died as a result of the mistreatment that she had that evening, the evening before that, or if she died on the travel back, or if perhaps even the Levite was so angry that maybe he put her to death. We're not sure what the, the particular are. We do know that when by the time that she was home, she was dead, and they, he cuts her up and sends out the parts to, to various places around Israel, uh, 12 pieces to, to each of the tribes. And then in verse 30, it says, Everyone who saw it uh, said, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day of the Israelites came up from Egypt. Tell us about it. Consider it. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. So in verse 20, we start off with the Israelites gathering. Verse 1 of, of chapter 20, excuse me. We, we, the, the Israelites come together and they discuss what's going to happen. So that's kind of where we're at. So um, let's do this. Let's start with um, a reading through the first 17 verses of J- Judges chapter 20. And we'll do... Uh, Denny is at the, uh, the table, and uh, Daryl and Tom and us at our table, and we'll go through the verse, first 17 verses. Then all the Israelites began to Beersheba, and from the land of Gilead came out as one man assembled before the Lord in his And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers Benjamites got word that the Israelites had marched up to Mizpah. The Israelites inquired, Tell us how this evil act happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murderer, said, I am my concubine, came to you to Beth and Benjamin to spend the night. That night, some of the leaders of Juba surrounded the house, planning to kill me, and they raped me. So I cut her body in 12 pieces and sent the pieces throughout the territory assigned to Israel. These men have committed a terrible and shameful crime. So now, you Israel, Israelites, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. So all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to this tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now, this is what we'll do to give birth. We'll, we'll go up against it in the order decided by casting lots. We'll take ten men out of every hundred from all of the tribes of Israel and a hundred from, from a thousand and a thousand from ten thousand to get provisions for the army. Then uh, when the army arrives in Gibeah, uh, in Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for all of this vileness done in Israel. So all the men of Israel got together, the 
united as one man against the city. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that had occurred among the Bless you. Now. now hand over the perverse men in Gibbon so that we can execute them or remove, remove the evil from Israel. But the Benjamites refused and, the, and complied with the man of their own relatives, the Israelites. From their towns they came together to fight against the Israelites. Twenty-six thousand of their warriors armed with swords arrived in Gibeah to join the seven hundred warriors who lived there. Among Benjamin's elite troops, seven hundred were left-handed, and each of them could sling a rock and hit a target within a hair's breadth without missing. And the stone at a hair had not missed. Well, besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered four hundred thousand men. Okay. So we start off with uh, just a couple of pieces of information when you read. When you read something that says, from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead, what is it, what is the, what's being said there? All of it. Yeah, it'd be like us saying from sea to shining sea. From coast to coast. Dan is the furthest basically the furthest point north and Beersheba the furthest point east within the the land of of the Holy Land which is all west of the Jordan where's Gilead east of east of the Jordan yeah so it's encompassing all of the land that Israel has so that's just one of the things that is just mentioned because every once in a while you wonder why did they say well it's just an easy way of saying everybody and it was just kind of uh, their way of, of including all of the land. So it says the leaders of the tribe got together and um, they have this collective, all the tribes, and they all come together uh, in Miz- Mizpah. And Mizpah is about, it's a little northwest of Gibeah. And Gibeah is about four miles, four miles from Jerusalem. And, and Mizpah is right on the edge of Benjamin's territory and Ephraim's territory. So it's at the farthest uh, extent of, of Benjamin's appointed land. And so they come there, and um, uh, it's interesting that based upon the, the numbers that we see here, if these are accurate numbers, and again, there's some question as to whether or not is there truly... Uh, 400,000 or is it 400 divisions or we're not sure but if it truly is 400 uh, 400,000 it would appear that from the time that the nation left Egypt until the until this point in time they've fallen off in about about a third of their numbers total so we don't know why maybe it's uh, maybe it's tough um, Maybe uh, economy is down. For some reason, there's a decrease in birth rate. Uh, is it uh, uh, is it the stress of trying to live, uh, you know, in uh, obey God? Is it the fact that you're you're not obeying God and you're going off and 
and worshiping other idols and involved in pagan rituals. I we don't know. We but there appears to be again a a, a decrease in the number of of people that are uh, able to be assembled as far as fighting men, which it's gives us some small number that are willing to come. I mean, they've been so canonized. Could be so evil. It, don't heed the call. Except that what we know is that this is the one time, as we get further into this, this, this reading of this chapter, we're going to find out, actually in, in chapter 21, we're going to find out that every village and city is represented, every village and town is represented by having sent troops, with the exception of one town in the 11 tribes. And because of that, that town ends up being put to the sword because they, they made a vow, you all come up and help, and if you don't, that's it, we're done with you. And we're going to utterly destroy you. So it would appear that at least, uh, this is the only time, by the way, from the time of Joshua uh, until this point, this is the first time and only time that all of Israel gathers together to, to go to war. Uh, well, yeah, but but. Fighting other, that's very possible. Yeah, yeah, sure. Could could very well be. Could very well be. We're uncertain as to why. Uh, we can speculate, but it appears that for whatever reason the number's down, and that's that's probably as good a, a, a suggestion as any that that I've read. So yeah. So and then we have this this question: you know, What are we going to do? And the question, I guess one of the things is, uh, well, what do you mean, what are we going to do? <laughs> you know, don't you think maybe we should deal with the, the, the wickedness? Now, it's interesting. It's also interesting. Think about this. And we'll get back to this. We'll come back around when we get to the application po- portion of this uh, chapter. But think about this. Are they upset over what Dan did? Dan left the territory they were assigned. Dan creates a, their own religion, if you will, their own cult. Do they get? Do they? Does that bother them? No, it doesn't appear that, that you know disobeying God's not that big of a deal. But oh man, mess with the guy's wife or or concubine, and it's going to be a major issue. Just kind of interesting that from a human standpoint, we're all into whatever this is, versus from a divine standpoint we're going wait a second you're more interested in human in in the horizontal relationship versus the vertical relationship how's that going to play out probably not so well except that the owner of the concubine he was more willing to just toss her out the door to the gang yeah we're going to get to that as we start talking about it because this is this guy is a this 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 guy is is a piece of work you know uh, we, first of all, we get this idea. For, I just I just want to come back to a couple of things here on this. Um, he talks about this wickedness and this awful thing, and uh, and of course now I can't find my notes. So uh, oh, uh, this wickedness. In one translation says lewd or disgrace and disgraceful. The lewdness refers to the shameful behavior, especially fornication, incest, and murder. That's lewd behavior, murder. I just think that's kind of interesting. Okay, that's that. It's good to know that that's the that's the Hebrews thought on this, you know. And then and then the last one, this disgraceful, uh, literally 
comes with the idea of being stupid or senseless or willful sin. So apparently, willful sin is pretty stupid according, according to the Hebrew language. You know, is, is kind of what my takeaway from that. And uh, so uh, that's where they're at. And then they come by where um, this Levite gets out here and he describes what happened that fateful night. Now let's just break it down. And just for sake of argument, let's compare it to what we know happened in chapter 19, all right? The Levite and his concubine come to Gibeah from Benjamin to spend the night. Is that true? Yeah. Does he mention that, that it was just simply a stop, that that's not where they were actually finally headed? No, it only gives half that, half that part of the information. True up to the point. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to Snopes this. And uh, so the, it says the men of the, uh, of the city rose up against him, surrounded the house, and their intent was to kill him. Is that true? No. 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 He's lying through his teeth. You know? That's putting myself in the best possible situation. So they rape and abuse his concubine, which results in, his, in her death. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Partially. Partially. Think, think about this. It's hard to accuse them of adultery, or accuse this woman of adultery, or the men of adultery, when he gave this woman to them to play with. It's a little hard to say that, oh, you committed adultery. Well, yeah, but weren't you involved in the, in, in the process? And then, you know, he's then enraged by this lewd and disgraceful act, and so he took hold of his concubine, cut her up in pieces, and sent her throughout the land. Yeah, that sounds about right. You know, it's all the, it's, it's the woman's fault. It's interesting to me that it doesn't seem from anything that we've read, that he took time to have any concern about any injuries that she might have. Yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah, on, the, on the other side, just for the sake of, just to play devil's advocate, if would you really want to spend another night in this town? <laughs> just saying, you know, you got away with giving them your your, your concubine, but what what were they really interested in? <laughs> in you. <laughs> So maybe maybe it makes sense to at least move to the next town. You know, maybe I don't know. But it's interesting how how inter- isn't it interesting how he twists the facts and in such a way that it looks as though he's about to be killed, and that's the reason for his outrage and the fact that they supposedly killed his concubine. They said the one that came out and raped Yeah. Maybe, although that's usually, I mean, that doesn't seem to be the, the modus operandi of most people that rape. Now, it does happen with rapes, obviously. We know that. <laughs> Very possible, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, his vocabulary sounds pretty pious in this, in this passage, doesn't it? You know, and, and he, he seems to make, but do you notice he, ne- he makes no reference to God at all? It's all about what? What you did to me. It's another 
example of selfishness, much like Samson. It's all about me. God, it's not about you. So he makes this remarkable story that he tells. And then from this point on, he totally disappears from the rest of the, the last two, rest of this chapter in chapter 21. Is that like anything else that you encountered in maybe chapter, I don't know, 18 and 19? Micah. You have the story about Micah, and, and he, his stuff gets, he gets robbed. He gets, his idols are stolen, and then he disappears from the scene. It's all about what? It's all about Dan. Same thing's going to go on here. You know, it, it, it's as though uh, this guy, you know, this, the situation here tees up the problem. And the problem is going to be dealt with. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, he, he has himself introduced as the Le- this Levite. He's the, he's the victim of a series of unfortunate circumstances. And even though he doesn't lead the nation into battle, he is characterized as kind of the deliverer. He calls for the people to come together to fight this evil, and then he just disappears from the scene. So uh, he galvanizes them, you know, into military action, uh, but he, he definitely is gone. He's not there. And, uh, and so we, we're, we go on to the, re- the, the next portion here, starting with like verse 9, we've got... Um, uh, this interesting thing where they go up to and they decide who's going to who's going to um, who's going to lead them into battle. He says, no one's going to return home. Uh, and he says, but now we're going to go up and, and so we're going to do this by by lots. Now, by the way, they this is they don't plan for this to be a short campaign. You know why? What's it saying? Verses 10 and... What are they doing? Yeah. They basically are saying, okay, we're going to take 10% of the army and we're going to make them what? The quartermaster corps. They're the ones that are responsible for feeding us and taking care of, getting our supplies, you know, logistics, all that. Anything that's happening is happening with the quartermaster. They're, they're, we've t- set aside 10%. And... Uh, it's interesting that happens today too, doesn't it? You, you have to have an army. You have to have a quartermaster. You've got to have a group that that supplies you, that takes care of making sure the stuff travels from one point A to point B. And then who do they, who do they send up? Who's the first to go? Oh, sorry, we haven't got there. It's chapter is verse eighteen. My my fault. We'll get there. All right, we'll get there. All right, so, uh, yeah, it, it, I've already mentioned the, the, the issue of, you know, the Levite willingly gives his concubine to the men of Gibeon. I'm not sure how willing he is, but he at least throws her under the bus, so to speak. Uh, so their sin can't really be called adultery, but it certainly can be called rape, you know, from their perspective, and certainly from her perspective, too. Regardless of the yeah. Um, the, the effects of sin and what he did, I'm sure, weighed heavy on his conscience, regardless how. You sure hope so. You would think. You would hope so. 
you know, we have just what he did finally, and I think it's just he was in sin. It's the effects of sin, and um, which is you would think it would be part of it. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's like they're supposed to be leaders, spiritual leaders for the land. How's this guy doing with his spiritual leadership? Doesn't mention Yahweh. It's all about himself. Lets us set up his own religion. Yeah, yeah. It's more like demonic spirits. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah. Hit a cable program. Wore a special suit. Asked for contributions. So, interestingly enough, there there is a sense uh, that some people want to say that Benjamin not only was stubborn but had a sense of patriot patriotism. But really, is that really the case? What does Scripture tell us about? Well, we use we use an expression that that kind of coincides with scripture um, one apple does what to the whole barrel spoils the whole barrel right so yeah just like in first corinthians 5 it says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump you don't need a lot of yeast to make bread rise it responds just a little bit and and so it is here it appears that 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 Benjamin goes, you know what? We're going to side with our brothers in this town. And so uh, they raise an army to, to, rep, to, to go up against Israel. It's interesting, they raise about 26,000 men. We're, now, some the numbers as we get into this are kind of interesting. We don't know if 26,000 includes the 700 or if, if the 700 is part of the, uh, is an addition. In some of, the, in some of our passages, it, it, translations, it appears that they're in addition to. So we'll have to deal with that as we get into the rest of this, this story because the numbers don't add up and my sugge- I have a suggestion as to how to make them work. So uh, let's, let's keep going. Now, you notice that they're... they're that they have a, a group of men that are left-handed who are apparently really, really good with a sling. It says they can hit a hare, which they're basically we're talking about a rabbit. Oh. Okay. I was concerned for myself. Yeah, yeah. well, I was concerned, too. It's one of the reasons why I shaved my head. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have to worry about being hit by a rock. Um, but they haven't spelled this hair in here. H-A-R-I-N-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-I-N-
you know, they're really, really expensive unless you get them, you know, like the little kid scissors, you know, for your for school. You ever notice that when you imprint a pen, it's always imprinted for a right-handed person? I used to have a guy who used to buy pens from us years ago that always put it on like a, for a left-handed person, and he'd always say, are you, anybody here left-handed? So you give him a left-handed pen because the, the, the imprint was opposite on the other side and kind of backwards from the way that a right-handed person would look at it. Right, a person would look at it and look like it was upside down and, and writing and reading from right to left. If you think about it, so left-handed this is kind of interesting. And, and really, what's really fascinating about this is that w- anybody know what the name Benjamin means? Warrior. No, well, no. Right hand, son of the right hand. Son of the right hand. All right. The right hand was considered a good sign. Left hand, not so good. You've got 700 guys that are really, you know, and by the way, if you fight, if you go up against 700 guys that are all left-handed, you're right-handed, you're at a disadvantage. Think about baseball. Pitchers, what do you, you know, if you're pitching to a right-handed, right-hander, what do you want to put in there? A left-handed. Okay, why? Because it's harder to hit a left-handed pitcher. Versus close to your face. Okay, right. so. Yeah. The left hand is considered Yeah, so now we have. Yeah, in this culture, that's the, the, the hand you use to clean yourself. So think about this. We have fighting. If you're used to battling other right handers with their sword there, right. it'd be now these guys have that sword. Yeah, which by the way, which which by the way is what remember the story early on in Judges. I think the guy's name was I I didn't look this up, but I think it's Ehud. Remember him? He goes up against a king who's so fat that he sticks him with a sword. He's a lefty. He's a lefty, which is why they don't they check him to see if he's got weapons, but they only check one side. They check the wrong side. His weapon is strapped on the other side. And by the way, you know what? What you know what the tribe he was from? Just asking, Benjamin, <laughs> which is again the son of my right hand. And the best fighters are there are my left-handed people, which says something strange. And I'm not sure that it's necessarily good. It's very. Shows that you're empty-handed. That's right. That's right. Why do you think it was only uh, Benjamin where tribalism trumped the nation? The other yeah, that's a good question. Nation, that Benjamin stands along their tribe is more important. It, it it would appear that their their sense of of um, clan or tribe is more important than the overall nation. Which is that. Yeah, I believe he was. He was certainly the youngest of the. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and of course you know that was a whole issue of why the the uh, the brothers didn't take Benjamin because Daddy wanted him home because he was his. The, the the youngest, and then when they took him, 
he goes, oops, we got a problem, and what are we going to do? Because, you know, they, yeah, he gets set up by his brother, unknown to everybody, the, the guy who's the second in line to the pharaoh. So, yeah, Benjamin perhaps has had some interesting ideas in, as to how important they are or unimportant they are. Maybe, they, maybe they've got the youngest child syndrome that's permeated the entire nation, the entire tribe. I don't know. We're not, we're not sure. It's a good question. I wish I, I wish I had an answer for you, Gary, but I don't know. I can make something up. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't know. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, though, that, that in spite of these, the odds, 26,000 against 400,000, they still decide, you know what, we're going to stick by our, our people in, our, in, in Gibeah. We're, we're going to go to war. And uh, I find it interesting that uh, in spite of the terrible odds, it's brother fighting against brother. It's, it's, it's a civil war. It's a civil war that seems like it can't be won. But they don't care. They're, they're going to they're gonna die on what they consider to be a principle. And when people refuse to obey God's word, the result is always tragic. Spiritual life of the church is often crippled and eventually destroyed when congregations shut its eyes to sin and will not discipline discipline offenders, which is what happened here in Benjamin. So it's a picture of what can happen to us. Uh, There can never be unity among people of God as long as some of them cover up sins and allow it to infest and infect the rest of the body. Remember, a little leaven leavens a whole bunch I was talking to somebody recently. Who was I talking to? We were talking about how you sweep things under the rug. Yeah, we were talking about organizational behavior, pedophilia and stuff like that. Yeah. But, I w- but I w- there was someone recently who was talking about how we, we have this tendency to want to sweep things under the rug. And the problem with sweeping things under the rug is if you sweep enough of it under the rug, there's a big lump there that everybody can see and everybody knows. And people are going to trip over I remember when I was uh, one of my houses, I was the first to replace the carpet on the stairs from the original carpet that was there. I was absolutely amazed. I couldn't figure out why the carpet, the, the stairs felt so weird at times when I was walking up and down them barefoot. We stripped off the carpet, stripped off the, the padding, and underneath it are big, huge globs of mud. <laughs> the carpeters, carpeting people never bothered to scrape off. Just carpeted right over it. Yeah. And you're thinking to yourself, it's been there for 25 years or so by the time I got around to, to, to replacing those stairs. This was two, two houses, at least two houses ago. So I was like, man, what a weird... But, you know, when you, when you tend to sweep things under the rug, eventually it's going to be found out. It's going to create a problem. And this is going to be the problem we have with Benjamin is they're, they're sweeping things under the rug and God's going to call them into account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so, by the way, in Chronicles, we have uh, uh, a whole group from the tribe of Benjamin, which is, which is uh, Saul's tribe, the original, excuse me, the original uh, uh, king of, of Israel, uh, or the... Uh, Perhaps he was just a uh, a prototype. No, he wasn't a prototype. He was a uh, what do we call it when we just start something? We just try it. 
we call it not a prototype. You, you, it's the first time you try it. You try it and say, we're going to try this, a pilot. So perhaps Saul was a pilot king of Israel. Anyhow, in, in Second Chronicles, it talks about the fact that there's a whole bunch of guys that are ambidextrous, and I'm assuming that that's true of these guys. They were ambidextrous, and all from the tribe of Benjamin. Apparently, Benjamin had that gene that made them uh, a lot. Of, and so they had, they had bow, uh, they had archers and slingshots that were left-handed, and they were also right-handed. They could shoot, they could shoot or throw a sling from either hand. So it comes pretty handy in battle if you're ambidextrous. I guess it's kind of like having a in baseball it'd be a switch hitter, right? So okay, let's let's continue on. We we're going to set up for the uh, the battle now. Uh, we're going to be in verse eighteen, and let's read through. Ooh, man, let's read through. Uh, this is tough. I'm looking for a natural break. I don't know. I'll tell you what. Let's let me just read. Uh, uh, read through the first few verses of, of first, starting in verse eighteen. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God, and they said, "Who shall go first? Fight first against the Benjamites?" And the Lord replied, "Judah should go first. The next morning, the Israelites got up, pitched a, t- a camp near Gibeah, and the men of Israel went out to, to battle the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. But the men of Israel encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they were stationed themselves the first day. It says in verse 23, The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord, and they said, Shall we go up against the battle, uh, again to battle against Benjamin, our brothers? And the Lord said, Go up against them. Let's stop there. So, as we start to unpack this a little bit, look at this is what happens. By the way, you notice that they don't go, they don't go to God the first time and say, should we fight our brothers? It's just who should go first. It isn't until the second time they get around saying, oh, maybe we should have asked God, is this really what you want? So the first time they go, who should go into battle? And notice it's Judah. And I... I we were ta- several of us were talking a while ago, and I was telling you what was going to happen in, in verse in chapter twenty. If you go to the beginning of Judges, it says who should go up first in the battle in, in Judges in the first chapter or two of Judges, and guess which tribe goes up first? Judah. In fact, in verse one and verse two of Judges chapter one, after the death of Joshua, Israelites asked the Lord. Who will be first to go up against, uh, up and fight against, uh, fight for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord said, Judah is to go. So you have almost an inclusio here, where between the first chapter and the last chapter, because they ask again, who should go up first? And who, who does the Lord say? Judah. Judah goes up first. So they pitch their tent, they get ready to go to battle. Instead of asking, do we, should we go up against our brother? They ask, hey, let's just go up. Notice that they really, now all of a sudden they're asking God, but they're only asking him how the battle should go. And so the first day, Benjamin comes out and kills 
22,000 Israelites. Now, we're not told if Benjamin loses any. I think they're going to lose a few. And I think the numbers point out that when we get to the end of, we get into 21 and, and 20, where we, we start adding up the numbers and we find out that that's the case. The second battle, and, and so they get upset. They come home after that, right? And so they go, Oh, Lord, I can't believe you did this to me. We went up there and they beat us. Oh, should we really go up against our brothers? Finally, they get to the right answer. You know, and it's interesting, God does say, yeah, go up against them. So in verse 24, the Israelites drew up against uh, Benjamin for a second day. This time, when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. Yep. In two days, they twenty-six thousand guys came out forty thousand troops. Yeah. Now I'm on the other side, even if I'm at four hundred thousand, and I've lost ten percent of my my group in two days. I'm wondering. <laughs> I'm wondering too. <laughs> I'm wondering too. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> you sure? And so again, you know, the couple things. First of all, ten percent is interesting, isn't it? It would appear that. God is going, to, is going to punish Israel for its canonization as much as he's going to punish Benjamin for their canonization because they lose 10% of, the, of their fighting force in two days. So, you know, if I'm, if I, if I'm Israel and, and I'm the guy that's playing the battle, uh, I, I got to say that by the time I get there, in verse 26, the Israelites, all of the people went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping, for, Oh, Lord, I can't believe you did this to us again. You told us to go, and we ended up getting slaughtered. So they did the last time. They went up, and they, and they, they the, the, last, the second time, they, just, they cried and wept, right? And so what do they do differently this time? They fast. They fast. And they present offerings. Interesting. Interesting. What's the significance of that? Finally putting God in, in, in the position he should be. We're going to fast before him and ask what he wants us to do. And we're also going to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. We're going to, we're going to go and do the things that we're supposed to do. Before God, by the way, fasting is not something that's that was popular in most of the Middle East outside of the Bible. Uh, it, it usually occurs in several places. One, it occurs in the context of mourning. Uh, you're so upset you can't eat. And secondly, uh, re- religious use of fasting is usually connected with making a request before God. And the principle is that the importance of the request causes the individual to be so concerned about spiritual things that physical necessities fade into the background. You know, we're, we're going to concentrate on asking God and we're going to do so to the point of, of distraction where we're, not gonna, we're just not going to think about eating and not worry about eating. We're going to devote all of our time 
just spending time in front of God and being in Him and humbling ourselves before Him. And this process of fasting does something. Not only does it humble us, it also does something else, which is a, a rite that the Israelites practiced externally as well, purification. It's an opportunity for us to purify our bodies. So, Israel says again, should we go up to battle? What do you think? Is it worth it? We already lost 10,000. So this time they come up with this idea, yeah, let's do it. And what, Do you notice anything interesting about how they plan to do it? Yeah. We're going to get there. But let me just point out one thing in verse 28, because this is going to be kind of important too when we get there. Let's see. Let me get there. Okay. So uh, the Israelites, they fasted, and they had burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with uh, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. And they asked, shall we go up again to battle with Benjamin, our brothers, or not? And the Lord responded, go, for tomorrow, this is the first time God said this, for tomorrow I'm going to give them into your hands. I don't know if there's any significance to this, but again, I'm, I'm, I, I'm always fascinated by the number three. How many times did they have to go to fight three? What's the number of three? God. You know, it's just kind of an interesting uh, thing there that comes to my mind. I also find it interesting that over a three-day period, what started out as death and defeat turned into victory on the third day. Yeah, yeah, which uh, just seems an awful lot like, oh, I don't know, the resurrection or, you know, so, <laughs> just a few other things like that. So notice that there is kind of an interesting thing here, this Phinehas, uh, Phinehas uh, is the son of Eleazar, the, the grandson of Aaron, uh, if that's actually 100% correct, because some scholars say, well, maybe it was a, a descendant, maybe it was the second, you know, Phineas the, the second, we don't know. But if it's true that this is correct, that, that it's Eleazar and Aaron, then this puts this right near the beginning of the time of Judges, not near the end where it's in the book. Does that mean that this... Well, then two generations... Yeah. Remember we talked about this at the beginning of, of uh, Judges where we said that within the third generation, what had been a law became a principle, which then eventually became a, a mere suggestion. And, and that's what's going on here. And we see that by the time this, this, this is within no more than a couple hundred years. Because you figure Aaron dies, right? His son is, is, uh, goes into the land. Uh, and so if he's 100 years, maybe he's 100 years, we don't know how old he is, but uh, it's not unusual for people of that time frame to live perhaps even that long. So it's possible that it's 100, 150, maybe no more than 200 years have gone past since the time of Joshua. And you know, three generations, boom. Could be even like 60. Could be. Could be. It could be that bad. So this time God says, yep, I want you to go up. And this time, here's how they do it. Israel sets an ambush around Gibeah. And they went up the third day and they took up position against Gibeah and as they had done before. The, the Benjamites came out to meet them 
and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before. So about 30 men fell in the open field on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. While the Benjamites were saying, we're defeating them as before. This is easy. Let's keep going. Let's go. The Israelites are saying, let's retreat and draw them away from the city and the roads. And all the men of Israel moved from their place and took up position in Baal Tamar. And the Israelites ambush charged out of its place on the west of Gibeah. And then 10,000 Israel's, of Israel's finest men made a frontal attack against Gibeah. And the fight was so heavy that the Benjamites did not realize how near disaster was. The Lord defeated Benjamin before, the Lord, uh, before Israel and on that day, Israel struck down 25,100 Benjamites, all armed with swords. And the Benjamites saw that they, were, that they were beaten. Now, again, we're going to be flipping back between Benjamin's look and Israel's look as we, as we go these next few verses. Now, the men of Israel had given way before Benjamin because they relied on the ambush they set their men uh, near Gibeah. And the men who had been in the ambush made a sudden dash into Gibeah, spread out, and put the whole city to sword. The men of Israel had arranged with the ambush that they should send up a great cloud of smoke from the city, and then the men of Israel would turn in the battle. So up to this point in time, we're hearing again from Israel's perspective versus Benjamin's perspective. See how we switch perspectives? The narrator's doing this on purpose. And there's a big cloud of smoke. Israel sees it and goes, hey, guess what? It's time to turn and actually fight this time. And Benjamin began to inflict, uh, the Benjamites had begun to inflict casualties on the men of Israel, about 30, and they said, we are defeating them as in the first battle. But when the cloud of smoke began to rise from the city, the Benjamites turned and saw the smoke of the whole city going up into the sky. And the men of Israel then turned on them, and the men of Benjamin were terrified because they realized that disaster had come upon them. So they fled before the Israelites in the direction of the desert, but they could not escape the battle. The men of Israel came out of the town, towns and cut them down, they surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily overran them in the vicinity of Gibeah on the east. 18,000, and again, now we're getting different figures, but the figures are there for a reason. 18,000 Benjamites fell, all of their valiant fighters, as they turned and fled towards the desert, towards the rock of Rimon. And the Israelites cut down 5,000 men along the roads, and they kept pressing after Benjamin, uh, the Benjamites, as far as Gidim, and struck down 2,000 more. So the total then is 25,000 Benjamite soldiers fell, out of them, uh, all of them valiant fighters, but 600 men turned and fled into the desert with the rocks of Reman, where they stayed for four months. And the men of Israel went down, back down to Benjamin and put all of the towns to sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. So, well, my guess is that that one's a rounding figure and one's a, a more accurate. But still, think about this: if it's twenty-six thousand plus seven hundred, 
which is what we kind of read from the NIV, and now we're at 25,100, but there's 600 left. So that makes 25,700, so there's 1,000 that they're unaccounted for, it would appear. My guess, strictly a guess, and again, you know what my, my opinions are worth, because when you go to Panera, you can see how, how important I am. Keeps going up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> my influence continues to go down. The price of coffee continues to go up. <laughs> so uh, my guess is that over the first two days, they lost 1,000 guys. Oh, I could be wrong. The numbers kind of, they throw them in there, so they kind of screwed me up. I'm thinking, wait a minute, they started with 26,000 guys, not yep. yet. They lost 25,100, but then they lose 18,000. Now we're up to 38,000. Well, you see, yeah, you see there, so there that, what, what they've got is you've got a summation at early on, then you've got a breakdown of how it happens because you've got 18,000 plus 5,000, which gives you how many? <clears throat> plus 2,000. 25. So there's how you get your 25. One is a summation, one is a a, a, a breakdown, it would appear. You've got to remember the big numbers. I'm looking at the small numbers here. God says tomorrow I'll deliver these guys your hands, and three days later they do something. So where does that strange number come from? Tomorrow and three days later? Well, actually, three days uh, three days later was the, the first time was the battle. You go up, go up against them. And they lose. The second battle is they still lose, but God says to go up. The third battle says, today I'm going to give them to you. So he does it on the third day. This is all the third day. Now, it's the other... Th- it was the doing it the first day. Then they finally went on, you know, we better talk to God here. We haven't done that in a long time. <laughs> Maybe we should ask him if he really should be doing this, you know, because that, because that's always what you that that's always how you do things. You do it yourself until the third day, then they get delivered. Yeah, you know, you know, we we always do it our own way first, and then we go, oh, maybe I should have asked God. Should I really be doing this, right? Then I end up fasting on the third day because I really need to hear from. That's right. Yeah, and he does. That's the third day. The first day, the first day, they they add, all they do is they ask God who should go up in the battle. God says Judah. They go up and they lose. They lose twenty two thousand men. They come back and they cry and whine and moan, and then they say to God, "Should we go up to battle?" And he goes, "Yeah, go up to battle." So uh, they go up to battle the second day and they lose eighteen thousand. Now they come back and now they now they really are wailing. And they're sacrificing and they're fasting and they're tomorrow, which will be the third day. So they go up the third day and they win. Had they maybe done that from the beginning? Who knows? Who knows? It is interesting. Remember this. We've got a group of of men that are primarily uh, militia. And they're going up against a fortified town. So militia rarely are going to have siege weapons. Just don't have them. Don't have the time to, you know, why would you keep them? Why would you, why would you make them? Where would you store them? You know, it isn't until we get kings that we have a standing army, by the way. 
Up until the time of kings, there's only militia. Now, from the time of the kings, you have a standing army and a militia. So if you need extra men, you call up all, you call up all of the, the, the tribes. But if, if you start off with men are in the army. And it's interesting, too, that they drew them away from the city, mostly because of the Benjamites, because they go out there and they kill these 30 guys. Ah, it's going to just be like before. They move away from the city, so the city's unprotected. And they're unprotected because they got nothing at their back now. So they win as a result of, in essence, an ambush or perhaps you could say trickery. This reminds me of a story that happens in Joshua, which I know we haven't read the book of Joshua together. But the book of Joshua talks about after the, the, the wonderful battle when the, the, the walls of Jericho fall, Israel decides to go up against this little town called um, is it Achaia? Ai? What's, I can't remember the name of it now. Isn't that terrible when you get to be old? It's in Joshua chapter... Uh, let me go here. Let me see if I can get there real quick because we're running out of time. Joshua, Joshua, Joshua. There we go. Uh, Ai. Yep, Ai. So they go up against Ai, and Ai just puts them to the sword. And they're going, what the world's going on? I thought we were the chosen people. We should be winning. Why, how do we lose? And so Joshua figures out a way to attack a walled city. He does exactly what Israel does in Judges 20. He sets up an ambush. He draws the men out of the city to chase the Israelites. And then the, the tribe, that's the, the portion of the, the troops that are, that are in ambush, go into the city and destroy it. So the way that they do this is, is the way that makes sense for a militia who doesn't have a full complement of 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 uh, weaponry uh, that that perhaps a standing army would have. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna run out of time. So I need to close this down. So I'll just say this: Isn't it interesting how God chooses to move in our lives, and sometimes He's silent, and sometimes He's not. And when He chooses to to give us direction, it really helps if we obey. Just say, it goes a whole lot easier. Yeah. I, I, from personal experience, I can tell you this. It never goes well when I do things my way. Mm. Uh, I, I've tried. <laughs> and unfortunately, I, I'm that, that idiot that keeps having to do it again and again and again to learn the lesson because if, if it just takes a little bit of time for me to forget the lesson I already learned. So if we learn anything from today, you're, you're glad you're not alone. <laughs> Well, join the ranks, bud. We're going to get T-shirts. <laughs> All right, let's have a word of prayer. Before close. we say yeah. a word of prayer, I yeah. uh, have a corn host. I have a small farm over here on 19, just east of Quinder. Oh, yeah. I have a corn host. Oh, wow. You guys are welcome to come. You have grandkids. We have grandkids and little fat rides and stuff. It's just my small way of sharing God's blessing with me. Oh, cool. Very, you know, my friends and relatives and can, associates. So, uh, can, uh, uh, cool. Yeah. 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 Yeah
And uh, since this is the, the seventh, you know, I thought about the seventh, you know, that the land's supposed to rest at the seventh year. So, <laughs> I hey, would you have this or not this year because I let the land rest? I know it's an old thing about, you know, we the soil and stuff like that. I said, well, I don't know. But then all of a sudden, these rains came. You know, March, and I couldn't get in and plow the fields. I said, you let this ground rest it? Maybe God's just trying to tell me something here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was still quiet, and it was still kind of, Bouncing my ideas around the letting the ground rest for seven years after you know, for a year after seven years, but I plowed the, the property for other people too, and they come and do little things. They put them through uh, stress as that. Uh, I'll point the corner and make sure I did. Cut it in, and it should be ready in time. Cool. Great. Cool. That's terrific. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah that'll be great. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word and spend time with friends. Um, Boy, we look at this book of Judges and it seems like we just simply are looking in a mirror at ourselves. We are so much like them so often, too often. So Father, help us to learn to realize that, learn our lessons and learn them well so we don't have to keep repeating the course. And we pray that you would help us, Father, to be faithful and to be honest and to be righteous this day as you lead and guide us and as your holy spirit teaches us may we learn to be obedient servants we ask this in jesus name amen